Hey, before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our top 10 Patreon contributors for 2019. So thank you to Paul Rathnam in British Columbia, Canada, Karina Gardano in St. Petersburg, Florida. She was actually our first patron. Thank you. David Marshall in Johannesburg, South Africa, Rain Mahadi in San Diego, California, Pablo Barito in Tijuana, Mexico, Jason York outside Louisville, Kentucky, Sanika Kruger in Johannesburg, South Africa, Lee Ray in Cardiff, UK, Tuna Osman in Ontario, Canada, and last but not least, Amy Baker in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you. You were our top 10 contributors and congrats on receiving some of these Patreon perks over this past year and get prepared for some additional ones and I'm only going to make it better here in 2020. So if you don't know what I'm talking about as far as the Patreon perks, well, just check out that Patreon episode link below in our episode descriptions where you can learn more about these perks and get a shout out on a future episode. Plus, by being a patron, we're going to add this next year a private monthly group call for all Patreon members. So you have the chance to interact with past guests and meet some of my favorite listeners, obviously, which are Patreon contributors. Plus, another perk of being a Patreon, you'll receive those exclusive hidden interviews that we started releasing at the end of last year. Some of which are really awkward, others where we talk about how you can start a new business for less than 500 bucks. Another perk of being a Patreon, well... You can book an immediate call one-on-one with me where I'll give you honest feedback on how you can improve your business and not just sugarcoat things. Wait, there's another perk? There are actually a few more, but I'm not going to list them all. But if you want to really find out all these perks, well, just go check it out at millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. And so without further ado. Every entrepreneur has hard work and struggle but sometimes a little luck falls in. By the end of the first year, I had done about $350,000 worth of work and money to me was like water. Wife could go shopping. My wife is very frugal, by the way. She doesn't spend money like I do. All of 2011 maxed out all my credit cards, blew through all my savings. So you learned that from your dad? (laughs) (laughs) our family motto was we may be broke but we ain't poor my name is danielle putnam i'm the president of the new flat rate 38 years old and live in dalton georgia and i'm rodney 64 years old i'm the ceo and founder of the new flat rate in dalton georgia so what's the new flat rate thanks for asking we're actually a software company We have an app program. We started as a price book. It was a physical printed price book for contractors, heating and air conditioning, electrical and plumbing, primarily residential contractors. And so we help them with their pricing. And now it's a software system where it's all app based and everything, of course, is digital. It's got five options. So when a contractor goes into the home to do a diagnosis, our system provides five different price points for anything diagnosed in the home for the contractor or technician to present to the homeowner. That way, the homeowner never feels backed into the corner by only receiving one price with a take-it-or-leave-it ultimatum. The technician doesn't have to try to upsell to get the customer to buy more. They simply take our system and present what we call a menu to the homeowner, and the homeowner chooses the level of service they like. And 80% of the time, they upsell higher than the bottom option, and so it creates more cash flow for the contractor and a win-win for the customer because they're able to choose the level of service they want. So we have two people obviously on the call here. So are y'all married? 
We're not. Rodney is my dad. I know. I was joking around. Sorry. Because <laughs> the age difference as well. So we have a daughter here and then your dad was originally part of this company and kind of started up and then you came in and helped him. Well, we both started. We were both here at the beginning. My dad's a contractor. Yeah. So why don't we jump back to that? And then I think it'll be easier for everyone to kind of understand the new flat rate because y'all started out of an issue that he was having. So if we want to talk kind of about his backstory and how we got to where y'all are, and then I think it will help us understand why you started the new flat rate. Perfect. So in 1984, I moved from Minnesota down to Georgia. And I moved there really to attend a Bible school part-time and then work. I didn't want to work in skilled labor because I thought it was beneath me. Everybody I knew was an electrician. I thought anybody could do that. So I tried to get other jobs and nobody would hire me. Eventually, I finally went back and took a job as an electrician in Dalton, Georgia. That was in 1984. And it actually was uh, November 13th. I remember very well because I was very hungry. I was willing to work very, very hard. They said the job would last six weeks. They said they would hire 20 electricians and in six weeks lay them all off. I had one goal. My goal was to be the last man laid off. So I worked harder than anybody. The job actually lasted six months and I was the last man on the job and they wouldn't lay me off. They wanted me to go to a job in Atlanta, but that was too far for me to go. So they asked me to come and help them remodel an office they were putting in Dalton, Georgia. I worked in that office and then worked for the manager of that office who eventually trained me to be an estimator. And I went from estimating into management in that company. By about 1988, I was promoted to the board of directors and made one of several vice presidents of that very large company. And what was the company name? The company name was G&W Electrical. They were an industrial electrical company. They had about 120 electricians. And I moved up very easily and rapidly in that company, mainly because I was willing to just follow the process, do what I was told, and they had good processes. Typically, my jobs ran anywhere from 70 or 80,000 to six or $700,000. And I followed the process, made a lot of money for that company. And then there came a time where they probably promoted me too far. Right when you started, were you in your young 20s when you came down? Because I want to keep an age range, too, of knowing how old you were when you came down to outside Dalton, Georgia. I was 29 years old when I moved to Dalton, Georgia. Okay. And again, you're going from doing the electrician work to being promoted to going on jobs and estimating how much they might cost. And so you did the basics. You worked hard, and then you kind of kept getting promoted in the management and the cost estimating. That's right. Okay. All right. Actually, my first year in 1984, I was so desperate to do a good job that I received eight raises the first year. Oh. Never heard of that. I've never given anybody eight raises in one year. So that shows you how desperate I was to do a good job. But because of that, they promoted me. They wanted to train people to become managers of offices that they could put in different cities. So I was their first experiment on that. I suppose it was probably two or three years, probably about 87 or 88, that I was managing their North Georgia division. And along that time, I was also promoted to the board of directors. And so I was like 31 or 32 one of the youngest board members ever on such a large company. As a board member, I could look over all of the jobs in the company. My jobs were extremely profitable. Others weren't. So I became critical and they basically asked me to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> That's one thing I couldn't do. They had promoted me, given me raises, treated me great. 
but it was just hard for me not to be frustrated when I saw money being lost in other divisions. And can I ask, why were you good at understanding how much a job should cost versus the other guys? It sounds like weren't putting in enough margin in there, or it seems like the ones estimates that you're coming up were profitable, but these other guys weren't. Is that the case? Not necessarily. Most of the jobs I ran, I didn't actually do the original estimates. Okay. Estimating department did. So when I got a job, it was my job to re-estimate, set up the budget, and then follow the budget to make money. The other jobs that were losing money were just mostly not managed right. Most of them had been priced decently. They just weren't being managed right. And that's why I became critical because I could see that they weren't being managed right. Okay. So by manage right, do you mean they weren't getting done fast enough that they put in enough margin, but things were getting done fast enough. So y'all weren't making money on it? Two things in direct cost. Well, three, labor, material, and equipment. And so they were doing work for general contractors that wasn't in the budget. They were doing change orders without pricing them and getting contracts signed. And then the biggest problem, I will just tell you right up, is that they had people running jobs and a typical job might have 20 electricians on it and a foreman. And we had a lot of foremen that were coming in drunk, drinking during the jobs and setting an extremely poor example. And those jobs, you could really tell. So I became very critical of that. And I wanted all of those people fired. So I kind of caused a stink in the company. Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, because I don't think we have maybe a lot of contractors here. I kind of have an understanding of contracting in this background. I just want to make sure everyone's on the same page. When you said you had more of the profitable job, did you not have those type of people? Because it sounded like it was mainly the people that might have been the issue with the other jobs that were not making money. That's correct. Okay. As a project manager, it was my job to choose a foreman to run a job. Then as a project manager, I would visit that job at least three days a week. And I would make sure that the materials on the job were the materials that were approved in the estimate, that they were using the correct number of materials and not losing or selling materials off the side. On a job like that, a roll of wire cost us at that time in the late 80s, one roll of wire would cost $3,000. If you stripped the insulation off of that roll of wire, you could sell the copper for $900. Some people weren't exactly honest and they would order more wire than they needed and basically they would steal the excess and sell it as scrap. So I began to notice where this was happening and I could see why those jobs were losing money and my jobs were making money simply because I managed my jobs the way that I was taught to manage them. So that's just really what happened there. And so you're making them a lot of money. So it sounds like maybe there's a transition in your thinking at some point that maybe you wanted to start your own business. No, I was a hero in the company. All my jobs were profitable. Whenever I went to the home office, they would pat me on the back. I mean, I was a hero. It was very great for my ego. But when I began to criticize other divisions, they just really asked me to stop doing that. I did not leave to start my own business. I had no desire to be in business myself. I left on just what I thought was ethical principles. I knew I couldn't stop pointing out what I saw, and so I resigned. When I resigned, I would have been happy to go to work at McDonald's or go to work for another contractor. It was not me, it was my wife told me that if I would quit my job, because she could see I wasn't happy, that her and the kids would pass out flyers and get me work as a service electrician, which had been my background. 
also, when I left, another person left with me, and he really pushed me to start my own company. So between my wife and this other guy, I was encouraged to start my own company. And what year and what age were you? That was in 1990, so I would have been 35. And was Danielle, were you born yet? I was nine years old, Okay. and I like to say that was my first job. Uh, it's good to hear the year is 1990, because I've always told everybody I was seven, so I, really I was nine. I remember that summer we had a station wagon and it did not have air conditioning. And here we are in Georgia and it was extremely hot. So naturally my memory isn't always the best because I feel like we rode around all summer long with no air conditioning in the car. And my older brother, who would have been 11 at the time, the two of us got out at every business in town and walked in and said, my daddy just started a business and here's a flyer. And we handed him a flyer and turned around and walked out. So I very clearly remember that summer. And Rodney, did you have enough money saved up to do this? Because again, you were the hero in this old company. I guess you got tired that the company wasn't listening to you that they can prove through other people as well. Just tell us about this transition again, because if you're going and you were the head honcho, it seemed like the savior at this company to going to start a kind of square one and maybe having to actually be an electrician, it seemed like a step down to some people. Well, I was managing maybe a fourth to a third of the company's business. So I wasn't the head honcho by any means. I reported to a vice president and to a president who I respected greatly. And by the way, and I was a good negotiator. So I had continually negotiated salary increases. And in 1990, when I left, my salary at G&W was $37,500. Today, that might not sound like a lot. But for me back then, I felt like I was really up there. So that was impressive for me. I had a company vehicle, which was nice. When I left, I had, I don't know, five or six kids at home. Wait, five or six? Well. Well, you have six altogether. I just want to make sure you have a good count on how many kids you had at home. I have nine children, but I think at the time I had five kids. Okay. I believe you. I didn't know if we stopped at five or six. So you're up to nine. All right, got you. So the interesting thing, I suppose, is when I quit that company, I was really like most entrepreneurs. I left with almost the exact same thing as every other entrepreneur. And that was my last paycheck. So my paycheck, my take-home pay was, I don't know what it was. I think I was getting paid every two weeks then. So whatever the heck it was, that's all I had. And I had a little Datsun station wagon, what's called a Datsun B210 station wagon. I strapped a ladder on the back of it. And the first service call, the kids got me. The first day they went out and passed out flyers, I got a call from Rainbow Waterbeds because they had a light that didn't work. I went and fixed their fluorescent light, put a ballast in it that probably cost me $6. I charged $135 for the service call. And I thought, if I can just do about four of these a week, I can survive. So that's my attitude. I was not a big business, a big entrepreneur, a big planner. I didn't have any business plans. All I wanted to do is make as much money as I had been making and survive. That's all I wanted to do. <laughs> And again, it's early 90s, so did things go well? By the end of the first year, I had done about $350,000 worth of work, and money to me was like water. I had never had so much money in my life. My wife could go shopping. My wife is very frugal, by the way. She doesn't spend money like I do. By the middle of that first year, we had groceries. We had clothes and shoes for the kids. I'm sure we had a nicer vehicle, and life just seemed pretty darn easy. But by the end of the year, it wasn't service calls. It was actually industrial work. From my former business, 
I had former clients call me and want me to do work, which I refused to do at first because it was not ethical to take business away from my former company. I had a factory come to me and say, we do not do business with your former company. If we don't do business with you, we'll get somebody else. So I went to work. I did a job for them. And is that what actually started making you a lot more money instead of doing maybe house calls and residential work, getting back into the game of maybe with these industrial cost estimating? Yeah, I had a glue factory that was moving to Dalton, Georgia from Chicago to make carpet glue. And the manager there asked me to come and hook up some equipment. I gave him a price of $30,000. By the time we were done, there were some changes. So the job took six weeks. It was $38,000 in total. And that was probably March of 1990. And when that job was done, after six weeks, I paid all my bills and I had $10,000 in my pocket. I'd never seen that much money in my life at one time. And Danielle, do you remember the transition of the first year when he actually had his own business? It sounded like he made a good move. It was obviously being worried at first where y'all actually are handing out flyers. And then by the end of the first year, it seems like dad's bringing home a lot more money. Yeah, I don't have a lot of memory during that time. Somewhere in there, we got a boat. I don't know what year. And I know we started going to the lake all the time and had a lot of fun. He had to get a big boat with all the kids, right? <laughs> Did a lot of skiing. I know that. Okay. Yeah, I'll promise we'll weave you in, I guess, as we kind of get to the new flat rate, if that's okay. I just feel like this backstory kind of helps everyone establish why y'all made the company. And I think it's just kind of interesting to hear being able in the mid 80s, just you grow a business and that was even before the internet. So I don't even know how businesses were growing before then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how many years did it take? Did you slowly grow your own personal electric company here? Or you want to kind of fast forward from early 1990? I can just say that the first four years were very easy. Really, the first three years were just a breeze. Money was like water. I did a lot of industrial work is when you work in uh, manufacturing plants. We have a lot of carpet mills here. I was able to pick up a lot of business in carpet mills, but the way that I got the business was a little strange also. I was teaching electrical exam prep classes twice a year at the college. The state of Georgia was threatening to require that carpet mills have licensed electricians in each mill. So I had plant managers, supervisors, plant foremen, and engineers in my class because they wanted to take and pass the state electrical license. So I taught those classes for 20 years, starting in about 1988, maybe 89 because my first electrical job came out of that class where one of these plant managers asked me to come and move a 400 amp service in his building because that's where I got my first contacts in the carpet mills. So when they would come, the carpet industry was consolidating and growing at a booming pace. I hardly ever had competition. Somebody would say, how much to move this equipment? And I was a professional estimator, but I would also always budget high when the market would allow it to go high. So I did a ton of $8,000 jobs, $18,000 jobs, $20,000 jobs. But what happened after the three years of that, a foreman might call me and say, we need five electricians tomorrow morning for a job that will last six weeks. Now that was gravy, high profit work. Time and material, high profit work. But if I didn't have those five electricians, I couldn't get it. So what I had to do is I had to start taking other work 
so I could keep 10 or 15 electricians on my payroll so that when somebody called for five, I could break five away and put them on a job for a few weeks. Now, any contractor will understand this. I was doing high profit industrial work and I started taking break even commercial work to keep my guys busy. That was about the middle of 1984 and things started to go downhill because... A 94, right? Yeah, because all the money I was making in industrial, I was basically losing in commercial. Commercial was extremely competitive, extremely low dollar, and the general contractors were very hard to work with. They were very slow to pay. So for the first time, I started picking up debt and trying to solve my problems. What if you can make your work take less work? You can with Captera. Captera helps you find the right software for your needs fast, so you can get back to business even faster. Compare thousands of software options, read reviews, and instantly narrow your favorites. You'll have more time in no time. Find the right software right now at captera.com forward slash millionaire. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 1 million reviews of real products from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software, everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software to make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. Captera.com slash millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Captera, software selection simplified. Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part? FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days, no catch and no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com forward slash MI and enter millionaire interviews and the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com dot com forward slash mi and for more information about fresh books you can go check out episode 141 where i interviewed the founder mike mcdermott and by commercial you mean are we just talking like office buildings or are we talking about something else commercial is office buildings schools strip malls things like that 
Okay. But the big money again, yeah, it makes sense to me. Like you're saying you made a lot of money on the industrial if someone calling the next day, but you didn't have electrical guys you can call on demand ready to work for you. So you have to have these break even jobs and it sounds like we're actually losing money. But again, it's so you when you had the high profit jobs, you were ready to take them off of that and put them on something else right away. Correct. Also the mentality of a entrepreneur, especially in contracting, electrical, plumbing, heating and air carpentry. The mentality is that I have to become a big company. If I become a big company, it will get easier because I'll have more money. That is almost all the time the opposite of the truth. Right. And so you just found that out over time? Was that your grand vision that you're just going to keep becoming bigger, but you found out that actually was not what you thought it was going to be? That's exactly right. To become bigger was to take the low-hanging fruit which was the commercial work that was so cheap, nobody else wanted it. I was suckered into doing a lot of that work. By 1998, I had 18 employees. We did $1.2 million, and I was really excited as an entrepreneur. I went over a million dollars. Most people don't know that in contracting, over 90% of contractors, the first year they go over $1 million, actually lose money. So here's what kind of an accountant I was. I thought I was making money because I went over a million dollars until my CPA said, Rodney, you borrowed $235,000 this year and you counted that as income. (laughs) He showed me that I had probably lost $350,000 that year. And that explained to me why I had no money. Right. That makes business no fun. That's exactly right. But during that time, I hired consultants. I joined industry best practice groups. I began spending money that I didn't have with anybody who said they knew how to solve my problems. We teach you to be a more profitable contractor. We can teach you to be a bigger contractor. We can make it easy to get employees. And over a 10-year period, I spent $350,000 on consultants, sales trainers, seminars, books, tapes, and best practice groups trying to solve my problems as I went deeper and deeper into debt. Yeah. And unfortunately, it sounds like that didn't work. No. Now, most people will say that business is feast and famine a lot of times, and it was, but overall for our family, my kids and Danielle can attest, they probably felt like they were the rich kids because we had a boat. About every two years, we would take five or a seven-day ski trip. Those were things none of their friends were doing. My kids always had something to drive, even if it was a service truck. So our family motto was, we may be broke, but we ain't poor. (laughs) (laughs) So even the kids were saying that? Or so did your kids have an idea about, I imagine, like I said, that's why I was going to kind of bring back Danielle into this. And again, she can talk more once we transition to the newest company. But did the rest of the family know this other than your wife, that you're having issues as far as debt crisis here? Before Danielle talks, I'll just say this. I never believed in bringing problems home. Every day I came home from work, I got out of my pickup, I combed my hair, I walked into the house and gave my wife a hug and had a happy family. I'd be desperately struggling and no way am I going to be able to make payroll this week. Most of the time, my family didn't know it. Is that true, Daniel? Yeah, it is true. By 1998, I was homeschooled at that time. I was in my junior year at high school and I worked during the day at dad's business. I thought I was the office manager, really. I helped answer the phones, sent out some marketing postcards. I ran parts to job sites and helped in the warehouse with inventory, picked up things from the supply houses. 
and loved working for dad's business because I had a gas card. I could go to the gas station, get snacks for my friends anytime I wanted. And so I thought that we had lots of money at times, but then there was other times if I wanted something, mom and dad would say, no, we don't have any money for it. So you knew it wasn't all profitable. Like it seemed like business was okay sometimes. And then other times it wasn't as great. That's right. And if dad had the money, he would share it very openly and freely with the family. Hey, yeah, you know, we can get this or we can get that. And if you didn't have the money, then we just couldn't. Yeah. It sounded like, again, we, yeah, we know your mom was the penny pincher, right? Versus your dad. She was, and she always grinded. She would grind her own wheat, make her own bread. She ordered food in five gallon buckets off some sort of truck every couple months. And so we always had five gallon buckets of rice and beans and wheat. And she was always making everything homemade from scratch, very much on a shoestring budget. Y'all were in Dalton, Georgia this whole time, just so other people get an idea, I guess two hours northwest of Atlanta? About an hour and a half northwest. Okay. And so y'all were there during this whole story? Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure we kept track of that. So Rodney, do you mind if we jump back in as far as the debt as we kind of transition to the newer company here? Yeah, I got a phone call from my banker in 1998, cry 1997. And he said, Rodney, you're in trouble. I said, yeah, but I said, I don't know why. He said, you have too much debt. I said, well, I don't know what to do about it because I would just borrow money to get out of trouble. And by the way, I refinanced my home three times. By that time, I had refinanced it once or twice. He says, I'm going to do something for you. Now, this was 1997. And he said, I'm going to consolidate your debt and I'm going to loan you a lot of money and we're going to help you out. And I said, well, how much do I need? He said, well, come on over here and let's work it out. So we did, and I needed $235,000, which I thought was unbelievable crazy. He said, that's what you've got to have. I said, what will my payment be? I said, will this be like for 20 years? He said, no, it's for five years. And what would my payment be? He said, your payment would be just over 4,000 a month. I said, there's no way I can pay that. He said, Rodney, you pay more than that right now, just in late fees and overdrafts. I was on the record as the largest overdraft person in that bank. So anyway, they actually loaned me the money. I didn't even ask for it. This was your bank? This was my bank. Okay. Of course, I had to jump through hoops, spend a bunch of money with my account and things. And by the time I got the loan, I was $60,000 short. I had two suppliers I couldn't pay off because it took three months to get the loan. So my one supplier called me demanding 41,000 and I said, there's no way I don't have it. But I said, I'll give you a check. I said, I'll write you checks that you can cash every 10 days. You can cash a check for $8,000 or something. The gal said, well, how do I know the checks will be good? I said, I've never had a check that didn't clear the bank. <laughs> Then another supplier, I owed 20000 and they were demanding money. And I said, you have to wait till I pay off the other supplier, and then I'll give you four checks for $5,000. You can deposit every 10 days. And that's how I got those two paid off. And at least half of those checks bounced and went into overdrafts. That, so 1998 was my lowest point, because what happened in 1998 is my banker called me, and he said, Rodney, as of today, we've paid $21,000 in overdrafts on your account. Can you make a deposit? I said, do you think I can make a deposit? He said, well, I don't know. What he may or may not have known is I was already running my money through another bank because 
I had to pay bills and I had to make payroll. If I deposited in that bank, it would just go be sucked up by the overdrafts. He said, well, just don't let it get out of hand. I hung up the phone and I practically stood there and sobbed. I was $21,000 overdraft. I owed them over $200,000. I didn't have a clue how I was going to pay any of it. I just knew I'd find a way. Ten days later, I was $31,000 overdrawn, and they had paid every check. Thirty days later, I hate to tell you, I really shouldn't even say what happened, but a consultant came into my office and tried to sell me a very expensive consulting service. I sold her on being my partner and took a check from her for $50,000. And was that a good idea? <laughs> well, I then called the bank and I said, I might be able to clear my overdrafts, but there's no way I can cover the late fees. So they forgave like $3,500 worth of late fees and overdraft penalties, and I was able to pay them. And a six-month agreement that I had wrote with the consultant that if things didn't work, if we didn't really see serious progress in six months, then I could pay her back the $50,000 over six months. And that's what happened. It didn't work out. And so I just started making payments back to her. And that's how I got through what was probably the toughest financial time in my life. And I began to reduce the company. I went from 18 employees over the next two years down to three employees. Myself, my son, Matt, who was 21, and my daughter, Stacy, who was answering the phones and didn't want to be there. And by that time, I had fought and struggled to apply everything that I could possibly do. I had learned to only take profitable jobs. I started to cherry pick. I gained expertise in things and got niche markets. So the three of us did just under a million dollars, which had taken 18 people to do just a few years before. And we became very profitable. And I also moved my business. I left the, lease, the property I was leasing. I got rid of an office employee or two. I cut $100,000 off my expenses and moved home to my basement. And over the next couple of years, built a garage and moved my business out into that. So that's what all those seminars taught you to do? I think I was actually learning something from the seminars about cutting overhead, cutting overhead. Overhead is what destroys businesses faster than anything. Yeah, because I was going to say, now you've said even within a year, it sounded like things got back to the way it was initially. Because if you just think about it, I guess 1990, how you started your own company, you were all worried about that and how profitable it sounded to you like you were year one. You grew the business. Most people listening probably want to grow their business, but it seems like just more headaches and more overhead. And you gave that stat, I guess, about 90% of electrical companies fail after they reach a million. 90% of in-home service companies lose money the first year that they go over a million dollars. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy that, again, from the outside looking in, I could see like, oh, wow, Rodney's growing. This company's growing really big. But you're going the opposite way the whole way after you started your first year. My friends thought I was rich. And my kids, for the most part, thought we were uh, way better off than their friends. And so quality of life was fairly good because the struggle was up and down. I've always said that early success is more of a curse than a blessing. Yeah, I agree. You have to struggle in business at some point. If you do it in the beginning, you're probably going to have a more stable business. So you never declared bankruptcy or anything within that first year of going back and downsizing your business, cutting all these expenses in 99? 
No. So you were able to just pay off everything and go get back to the basics of enslaving your children to help work for the company? Right. I never filed bankruptcy. I was more than bankrupt on paper, no question. Yeah, I know. That's what I kept thinking. I'm like, you didn't say you did, but I'm like, dude, it seems like it'd be the logical thing to do at that point. I will say that there's a lot of things that affect your life. Early on, probably in about 1988 or so, I had stumbled across a set of tapes by Roger Dawson called The Secrets of Power Negotiating. I became an expert negotiator, and that got me through a lot of hard times, whether it was with my bank or other lenders, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't file bankruptcy because I did not believe in bankruptcy. The truth is, having gone through all of those struggles, I have no problem with somebody that does declare bankruptcy because sometimes it's about the only thing that will help somebody keep their sanity. <laughs> right. And I kind of feel the same way. Some people want to do it. Some people don't want to do it. I don't judge either way. Everyone's in their own world of like what they want to do or not want to do. But it's pretty amazing that you're able to just talking about all these debts that you didn't and you were able to come out of it. And again, just cutting all those expenses. So would you recommend if someone's listening, you think that book helped you big time as far as being able to negotiate? It's called Roger Dawson's Secrets of Power Negotiating? Absolutely. Okay. I paid $50 for that tape set in the 80s. And I guarantee it's made me $5 million over the years. Everybody should become an expert in negotiating. Right. Because I think that's a skill set that people kind of lose over time. And it sounds like, especially given what you're doing, if you're having to go in there and look at costs and get an idea of negotiating, you can use it multiple ways. Like you're saying, even talking to your bank, like waiving late fees. Those are kind of just fees that they tack on that if you don't ask, you're never going to get. And call the banker for money. I would say to them, listen, I know that you have a problem. They would say, what's my problem? I say, you have a vault full of money. And if you don't get it loaned out, you're going to lose your job. I'm here to help you. <laughs> so you go to every bank now and do that? That's what I did back then. Right. <laughs> so 99 seems like, again, from the outside looking in, it might be like, oh, wow, I guess Rodney's not doing as well. If he had to downsize, go back home, do all those other things. But really, on the inside of the company, it sounds like things are doing much better now. They were doing much better. And by about 2002... I had the bank loan paid down to $90,000. I also realized, oh my gosh, my house is just about paid off. By that time, we'd owned the house for 17 years or something. So I called my banker because I was still having to fight those $4,000 a month payments. And I said to my banker, I'll bet you you've got a very thick file on your desk with my name on it. Yeah, sounds like it. And I said, I'll bet you you have a lot of other very thick files with people's names on them. He says, I sure do. You're not the only one. But I said, I bet I'm the only one that has my house paid off. He said, oh, yeah, you probably are. I said, I'm going to refinance my house and pay off this debt. He says, we'll refinance it for you. I said, no, you won't. I said, you could have done that for the last five years. I begged you to lower this payment. I said, I'll go, I'll refinance and I'll pay this off and we'll be done. And that's what I did. And it was probably about 10 years later that I actually paid off my house. <laughs> and so going back to the basics, were you actually going in the field and doing electrical work again? Yes. Uh, on and off, I could do the work or not do the work. The timeline goes like this. In 1990, I started an electrical contracting business. In 1995, I bought a heating and air business. 
that is really one of the things that was my downfall because in heating and air, you buy equipment from Carrier Train Lennox. In a month or two, you owe them forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, and you've already spent the money. That was the proof that I didn't know how to manage money. That's what eventually caused me to be in serious trouble. So that was ninety-five that I bought a heating and air company. By about ninety-seven, I started a plumbing company, and by two thousand, I got out of pretty much out of electrical and pretty much out of plumbing to just concentrate on HVAC because I thought that had the best potential for me and believe it or not to get paid what I'm worth. Constantly struggled with this thing, why won't they pay me what I'm worth when we did residential service? HVAC I thought might be the best way to do that. So in the 2000s, when I moved back home, I was mostly an HVAC company. Then that's just the timeline. Was that the right choice? Was HVAC more profitable for you personally? HVAC is probably one of the most feast and famine businesses because when the mild temperatures come, the phones stop ringing. But it was a good business and it was profitable for the most part. I will admit I screwed my business up more than I probably helped it, and I was constantly struggling to fix. To find ways to make it work, but when I moved back home in 2001, the phone company had to run、uh, new wires all the way out because we needed seven phone lines and a high-speed internet line. So I remodeled my basement. I think I put five desks in the basement, which was the lower level of a two-story house. And then by 2003, I had built a large garage and we moved out into that. By that time, because we had reduced our overhead so much. And because we concentrated only on profitable jobs, since there was only three of us, we could only do so x a number of jobs. So we cherry pick. Also, my oldest son Dallas, who I haven't mentioned, but who had worked for me in the business, I had helped him start his own business. So we subbed all of our air conditioning installation work. We subbed to my oldest son. I gave him fifteen percent of the gross, whatever it was, and he did all of our installation work, maintained extremely high quality. So that's how we were able to do so much work with only three of us. Alice had a couple of guys working for him. Whatever we sold, we just subbed to him. Yeah, and again, it wasn't doing like you said those commercial jobs for before, where in the nineties you're doing neutral profit, or you were actually losing money on some jobs just to keep those guys ready for you. I guess employees that were actually. Electricians or whatnot, versus now you're like, hey, we're not going to go down that route again and have that much overhead. We're just going to only do profitable stuff. And in the HVAC line, we were profitable when we were doing complete installations of new heating and air systems. We didn't do new construction. We did retrofit. So when people needed new duct systems or new heating and air systems, we did really well on them. We still struggled on the service calls. Because on service calls, people would push back on the price, and if we tried to sell and upsell in the home, the way you make money in the service business is to try to get your technicians to sell and upsell in the home. Technicians hate that; they don't want to do it. Customers feel the pressure. Sales resistance goes up, and so from 2001 to 2009, that whole time I struggled and kept saying. Why won't they pay us what we're worth? And by that time, I knew what it cost to be in business, and I knew what I had to have on a service call. 
and I constantly got resistance. Also by that time, the internet was, people were online, eBay, Facebook was coming out. By that time, Amazon and Home Depot and Lowe's were putting up stores all over the country. And in the 2000s, people started to know what parts cost. So if we said we can put that part in for $200, they would immediately say, I can buy that online for $50. And then we would have that whole struggle. So our pricing systems no longer worked. The pricing systems that worked good in 1995, which was, Mr. Customer, your blower motor is out. I can replace it for $220. And they would say, okay. They didn't know what a blower motor cost. They couldn't buy one. They couldn't put it in. Ten years later, they could find it online for $30 and find somebody to put it in for another $20. So ten years later, when we said, if you need a blower motor, it's $225, then we would get a whole lot of pushback. And technicians hate that. And so the whole business... I'll tell you what happened to the heating and air industry. Because our technicians got resistance, we hired sales trainers. Sales trainers came in, and we started doing sales training almost every week. They had to watch videos or have meetings being taught how to sell and upsell in the house. What happened is the guys that could do it, they hated the boss because the boss is a jerk, and they would go start their own companies. The guys that couldn't do it, they hated the boss, and they hated everybody else. They quit and went to work someplace else. In the 2000s, we lost more service technicians that got out of the industry or started their own business. So today, there's over 20 times more heating and air companies in my town and all across the country as there was just 15 years ago. We really destroyed the whole business. That was really the basis where we had to either get out of the business or find a way to solve that problem. Personally, was it your HVAC business? Did it still grow all the way through 2010? Because again, this is when the new flat rate starts in 2010, but your personal HVAC business, was that still okay? Yeah, it was pretty good. My son, Matt, he ran the service part of it and he did about 600,000 a year out of his truck, which was over four times the national average. But he is a process follower. And when I would send him to a sales training school, he would come back and do exactly what they said. His average shot, so he only had to do two service calls a day. He wouldn't hardly work after five and he wouldn't work weekends. But doing two service calls a day, he could generate a lot of money because by that time, we were cherry picking the customers. We called it, put the man on the money. When the phone rang, we only looked for the great calls. And we would send Matt on the calls that were in locations that we knew he would do good. By that time, I had become an expert on indoor air quality. And so I only went out on calls where there was health issues in high-end homes where they felt like their home was making somebody in the family sick. I had become an expert on that. And so typically about once a month, I would sell a nice job, usually about $35,000, and it would be very, very profitable. So between Matt doing service work and me selling indoor air quality, that's how we did a million dollars with just the two of us in the field. And then whenever we sold anything large, we, my oldest son, we subbed it to him for 15% and he put it in. So all through the 2000s, we actually were quite successful. But trying to solve the problem of not enough people like my son, Matt, was my only technician. He didn't want to work after hours or weekends. 
So then I would try to hire another technician thinking now we know what we're doing. A new technician could not and would not do what my son Matt would do. They would not sell and upsell in the home and they would not educate or help the customer to learn the value. So every time we tried to hire somebody, sales went down. That was the struggle. We couldn't grow the business, which meant Matt and I had to work every single day. Couldn't see any end out of this. So we either had to solve that problem or we were seriously considering getting out of the business. Also, because I was so successful with the indoor air quality, I began doing speaking at conferences and things trying to educate other contractors that this was a very profitable source of income and I really got no traction. Contractors couldn't see or understand what I was talking about. And that was about the time that I got the idea for the new pirate. So yeah, I think we all understand what you're saying. And it's good that you're forward looking at, you're like, okay, now personally, it sounds like you're finally getting wealthy again, that the business running well, but you're working in the business versus working on the business. Like you saw no end in sight of, I guess, you and your son, like being able to hire somebody out because it seems like you kept trying to do that and it wasn't not working out. So you came up with something to solve your problem here? What happened is, remember, I had sent Matt to a lot of sales seminars. And so Matt's average tickets were running over $1,200, which was five times the industry average. One day out of frustration, this was near the end of 2010, I started thinking, well, whatever Matt's doing is working. And so I told my daughter, Stacy, I said, go get me six months worth of service tickets that Matt has done. And I sat down at my desk and I started going through them one at a time. Every one of them, he had a yellow legal page stapled to it where he had handwritten four to six options. I began looking and I had sent him to school to learn how to write options. And we had been doing options for years and years, but I started to notice the consistency. I started to see patterns, trends, and formulas as I sat there hour after hour. Pretty soon I turned on my Excel program and I thought, holy cow, I could write a book. If I took his pages and made them into option sheets, then I could hire another technician. And all he would need to know is which option sheet to use for that particular service call. And I started writing what became the origins of the new flat rate program. I've never thought of it as a software business. Technically it is, but no, it was just, I saw those patterns and trends and formulas. And within a few days, I had written some menu pages, or I called them at that time option pages. And we had Matt go out and try them and test them. And it was just incredible. We had an amazing idea. Oh my gosh, we can hire somebody. We can hire one person. All we wanted to do is hire one more person. So Matt and I didn't have to work all the time. And this thing, it was like a light bulb went off. It was like, oh my gosh, this is so different. It might work. But there's one other thing that was happening in my life at that time. You're having another child? No, I, we always had children. <laughs> another one? No, there may have been. I don't know. <laughs> My youngest son is 17, so we've already had my youngest son in. Here is something that's very key to the story. Every entrepreneur has hard work and struggle, but sometimes a little luck falls in. And I had constantly, typically I read 50 to 100 books a year. I've always attended uh, seminars, listened to motivation, and I had stumbled across 
marketing innovator by the name of Jay Abraham, that most anybody that's an entrepreneur knows that name. Jay Abraham was running seminars for $25,000 for a five-day seminar. I couldn't afford that, but I could afford his books and tapes. So I was listening to Jay Abraham constantly, and I was on his list. He was one of the people that I felt might be able to help solve my problems. Jay had sent me an email that I'm sure he sent out to 20,000 people. The email said, 80% of the people that come to my seminars do not implement my training. So I want to do a special program. I'm going to call it the Tribe of 12. I want to take 12 entrepreneurs and work with them one day a month for 15 months and see what would happen if 12 entrepreneurs implement every month what I teach them. So if you want to apply to this, so anyway, I replied to it and asked for an application. The application was about five pages long. It was just crazy. Being the procrastinator that I am, I never got around to doing it. And then one night I was at a meeting, at a contractor's meeting, I think in Texas or someplace. It was a Sunday night and I remembered, oh my gosh, that application has to be in tomorrow morning. I knew I couldn't get it done. So I sent Jay an email that said, I want to be part of the Tribe of 12. I have two amazing ideas. I've sold over $15 million of heating and air equipment, and I have an idea, and I think it's my 15 minutes, and I don't want to screw it up. And that's all I said. When Jay saw that, he thought I said I had just sold my HVAC company for $15 million. That sounded good to him, and I was accepted into the program. <laughs> Did this help you put together the whole idea of the new flat rate? Because again, just to make sure that we're on the same page, when you're talking about the pricing options that your son would come up with, can you give me an example instead of me making one up of what you mean by exactly the option pricing? Right. We were coming into the heating season. So if somebody had a problem on their furnace, the problem might be the igniter, the thing that lights the flame. Okay, that's maybe a $70 repair back at that time, maybe $125. On the option sheet, that would be the lowest level, which we called the Band-Aid. That's just the Band-Aid, the quick fix. That'll fix it and make it work. But every technician knows that if you just fix the part that's broken, something else is going to happen because it was just the weak link, the first one to go. So what you really should do is go through the furnace, and tighten up all the connections, check all the terminations, tighten the screws, tighten all of the slip-on connectors, and check anything that could be loose. So that became our second level. We called it the bronze. Then the next level was our silver level. We called it the performance level. Okay, so let's check this furnace and make sure that it's operating the way it should and that it is running as efficiently as it's supposed to because over 90% of furnaces don't run as efficiently as they did in the factory. So with a little adjustment, they can be tweaked. That was our third option. So above that was the gold, and the gold said, we'll do all that, plus we will pull and clean all of the blowers, the fans. We'll service this all the way through, and as they moved up, we gave better guarantees. And then our top option was we'll do everything needed, replace all the parts needed, service the system, clean the system, restore it to clean condition, and we'll give a two-year warranty. We'll also come back in one year and double-check everything we did 
to make that warranty the best warranty in the business. So we built option sheets like that, and we built 20 of them. We called it the 20 most common heating repairs. When I had my first meeting with Jay Abraham, I showed him what I was doing with indoor air quality, and then I showed him this option sheet. He asked me a couple questions about the indoor air quality, then he never talked about it again. He picked up that sheet and he said, you're telling me this sheet will sell. I said, yeah. He said, you're telling me the service man doesn't even have to talk. I said, that's right. He said, have you tested it? I said, yeah, we test it every day. He said, who else tested it? I said, nobody. He said, then you don't have a business. I said, so what do I do? Jay Abraham taught me how to beta test. He told me I had to run beta tests in the northern part of the country and the southern in the east and the west and in the middle. He said I had to do it with big companies and little companies. He said I had to do it in big cities and small towns and out in the country. And he said technicians would not be allowed to talk when they were using it. What are you saying? He said, you're telling me the paper will sell. Now let's prove it. I did not want to do that because I didn't have any money. I mean, I was still running on a shoestring budget and I thought, well, I can sell this and it can start going, making a lot of money. He said, no, you're not ready. You have to test it. So I went back and Jay Abraham wrote the email for me and said, send this email out and you'll get enough people to beta test. Now, here's two of the most important things that Jay said. Number one, he said, your number one asset is your ability to test. That's the most important thing you have in life. He said, number two, I don't care if it works. He said, if it doesn't work, we change it, we fix it, we tweak it, and we test again. He says, we're not testing to prove that it works. We're testing to find out what it needs to make it better. Long story short, we ran beta tests in eight states. The average service call for a HVAC company at that time was around $230. When they used our system with a technician laying it in front of the customer and not even speaking, the average ticket jumped $200 to $430. It did that in all eight states. In every company we tried it, it did that. And that is what changed the game. So basically they were just like, did they bring an iPad and that's where the person got to decide and they click on it versus again, back in the day where you're trying to get people to upsell these people, these guys weren't talking at all. They just brought an iPad or something like that for them to select. So we didn't have an iPad until 2017. Okay. So well, then how did those people select then whenever you're going to these service calls? Great question. Our first version of the price book, which was 35 pages, we had 35 option sheets. We now call them menus. And so our group of beta testers, that's what we had sent them is the 35 menu pages. And they would just lay the page in front of a customer. By the time we started selling, we had created an actual book, spiral bound printed book. And this is what they would carry in. We now have thousands of menu pages. But back then we started with just 35. Right. Well, I think it's important too that do things simple. Like you're saying, I guess your dad was just saying that he was like, y'all were testing it. It seemed like everything worked well, but I mean, even then, I think there was the iPad or at least there were tablets. Like you could have spent lots of money trying to create a software or a program to sell to people, but you just went with the basics first, especially in this type of industry. They're used to carrying paper and trying to get them to do anything with tech sometimes could be an issue, I imagine. It took years to get people to switch to digital. They weren't ready for it. The industry wasn't ready. They were used to having flat rate price books already. 
And so the transition to having printed menu books was not a difficult transition for the industry. And they were already still handwriting their invoices and all of that too. So over a couple of years, then it started to get more and more digital. And we didn't have the funding to create a big expensive software program and app. And so we looked everywhere for partners and found an application in the Ukraine that could help us digitize and push our price books through onto a tablet for them to be able to start presenting options. And then back in 2017 is when we were able to actually build and develop and launch our first app. Okay. Well, I mean, if you want to say something, Rodney, like this transition. So did y'all stop doing the HVAC stuff and then you started, this is your new business again. I think we were, it's coming full circle of like how you got to where you are with this menu pricing and why you do it. But were you, did you close down the old company slowly and just decide we're going to go full in and we're going to have Danielle join us and help us too? In 2011, Danielle was living in California. She's my oldest daughter, probably my best friend in the world, and we talked all the time. By the time this idea came, she had been telling me that I needed to start a consulting company and quit giving away all my ideas. So when we started beta testing this, she was very much involved. When we saw the success of the beta tests, I called her and I told her, I said, you have to move home and help me get this thing started. I can't do it by myself. I said, it'll probably take six months to get it off the ground. I said, if you move home for six months, then you can go anywhere you want. And I said, and you can be the president of the company and I'll give you $75,000. Now I said that because I knew she was making about $60,000 in California, maybe about 70,000 and she was due for a raise. Now this is a very critical thing. One of the big advantages I've had is I've had my kids to work in my businesses. Without that, we wouldn't be talking today. When I said to her, you can be president and I'll give you $75,000, her entrepreneur mind, she's always wanted to be an entrepreneur and big in business. She said these words, and I love her today for these words. She said, if I'm president, I'll set my own salary. <laughs> I said, come on home. Yeah. So when she came home, that's why I also yeah, want to make sure that we have this transition instead of Daniel, just jump right back in. So you talked to us about talking to Danielle often, almost every day, even about this idea. Danielle, were you doing anything within business or I'm just trying to see like how you came in there? Because I've heard him list off the other children that were helping with the electrical company. But again, this is kind of a little different version, but you're in the same industry to an extent. Great question. You know, I grew up in the industry and helped in the office when I was in school, but in 1999, I moved. I left Dalton, Georgia. I went to Bible school in Texas for four years. I went to Portland, Oregon for a while, and I went to California for five and a half years. So I'd been gone for a long time. I, of course, I visited at holidays and Christmas, summertime and stuff like that. And of course, we all talked on the phone all the time. So by 2011, when we had started beta testing and we were talking about this, I was working at a technology company. And I loved it, having a great time out in California, but I had not been involved in the family business since 1998, 99-ish. Okay. Was there any weariness about coming back because you hadn't worked with your dad in a while? I mean, again, it was good that you got to do that when you're younger. So you got to see how he was, I don't know how much he might've changed during that point in time. So at least you got to see something, but was there any weariness about moving back from California home? Yeah, great question. People ask all the time, what's it like working with family? And I was terrified to move back home because I had felt like I'd finally made it. I loved the career path I was on. The company I was with, we had started. It was a startup in 2005. We went public in 2007. It was very exciting. I was doing business development, getting to pitch stockbrokers all over the U.S. 
and I was still young. I was 29 when I moved back home, I guess. You're still young, Danielle. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I felt really young then. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids yet. And so I loved what I was doing. But when assessing the risk and my dad called and said, I need help, I knew I would regret it if I didn't try. And of course, all my friends out there said, Danielle, this is crazy. Why would you give up what you've built and move back to Dalton, Georgia? That's crazy. It's a terrible idea. And so, yeah, you know, it was very scary, but I knew it was worth the risk because if I didn't make it, then I'll go do something else. It's not that big of a deal. But if I didn't try, I knew I would always regret that. And I believed in my dad's idea. He'd been talking about it for so long and we'd talked so much about it. I believed in it and I really did know that we could do something that would help more contractors. And he said, you can have 50%. I thought never in my life is anybody going to give me 50% of a company. I'm taking it. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like, there's wow. so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening, but I was curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, Bren, why are you paying this guy? What What's he giving? I said, it's, I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, yeah. you know? And I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money. And, you know, I can do the math. Hey, nice meeting you. Hey, same here, Austin. Well, cool. Well, thanks for joining that call on Friday. No, no problem. Thanks to you for having an awesome podcast and asking a blunt question. So do you charge for this or how does it work? You just want to help the Patreon members or? I just want to help you. Free call. Okay. Wow. And it's good because you're going into something where I guess if you're working at a tech company, you could see how maybe the contracting industry is so far behind in technology that things have already happened in other industries where you could see this be very applicable and like actually help this type of industry. And probably there weren't any much competition, it would seem like as far as like a technology play, if you will. To be honest, I didn't even have that perspective at that time. I see it now in hindsight. But at the time, wasn't even thinking that. We were just trying to build a product that nobody had because nobody had done this kind of a pricing system before. So we were just trying to help them be more profitable. We weren't even thinking of technology. It had nothing to do with technology. It had to do with the fact that so many contractors were like me. I was in all these groups. I visited with contractors all over the country. We were all in the same bag, not being respected for our skill, knowledge, talent, wisdom, and experience, and not being paid what we were worth because customers thought we were overcharging. So it wasn't about that, it was about, oh my gosh, this is a way, this changes the game. There's no more selling to a customer. What it is, it's letting the customer buy the same way they buy at Best Buy, Costco, uh, Dillard's, and letting them choose. And what we discovered is people will always buy more than you can sell them. It had nothing to do with technology, it had to do with how do you present your services in a way that people will gladly buy with no price objection and no buyer's remorse. It was such a breath of fresh air. It didn't matter to me if we did it on a piece of toilet paper or a printed book. It's no better on an iPad. It's no better on a tablet. Because you walk into Dillard's, you walk into Macy's, and you look at the tag, you still look at the tag, on the sleeve of a jacket. They're not standing there with an iPad showing you the prices. So this has nothing to do with technology. Technology came later as a way to solve another problem, which is technicians' lousy handwriting. <laughs> 
So as a sales company, you're helping improve sales at the end of the day at first. But over time, I mean, I imagine, Danielle, even thinking it's like, I had electrical work done on my house recently, six months ago, and they're still writing stuff down. But now if you're helping them with that sales and they're making the transition with an iPad, it's like, how much faster do you get everything? And it's much easier, I imagine, for you to track the probability versus of like something successfully working or not successfully working, like everything that you get automatic feedback almost after someone presses a button. Someone could still lose paper, even if they're using your sales playbook on how to upsell or let the customer do it. But for me as a customer too, it's like, okay, if I see someone with an iPad, as silly as it is, and I'm pressing a button versus pressing the check mark or whatever, it's much easier to track how everything goes and much quicker, I guess, at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, as you came back and kind of got this thing going, how long did it take to make this part of this business actually profitable here, Danielle? So I moved back in April of 2011. We had started some beta testing that Christmas before, and then we rolled out our next level of beta testing in May. And we were working what I call 12-hour days, seven days a week. Rodney would probably say six days a week. I felt like we were working all the time. In the garage, of course, we had no money. I spent all of 2011, maxed out all my credit cards, blew through all my savings. So you learned that from your dad? (laughs) Well, she learned that from that $75,000 salary that she was going to set her own salary for a year for nothing. (laughs) I knew we didn't have it. I mean, we both made $0 for a year because we didn't have it. So we very much just barely made it by, but we knew that we could build and we kept building. And so by the end of 2011, we finally started making some money because we had built our product. It took us that long to build out all the menu pages. And then at the beginning of 2012, we were selling. So by mid-2012, we'd probably paid back our credit cards, paid back the savings accounts, and we're doing decent. And so some of the struggles there at the very beginning, I wanted to point out for any entrepreneur, when people ask me all the time, oh, I want to start a business or, oh, I have an idea. I say, then you better start building your list right now. And they say, well, what do you mean? What list? Well, who are you going to sell to the day that you have a product and you're ready to sell? You have to have a list. And so that very first year in 2011, there was an old dinosaur computer in the garage that Rodney had used when he was a contractor years before that had an old Outlook program on there. And he'd emailed all sorts of contractors in groups all over the U.S. just talking about their businesses, just camaraderie. And so we turned on that computer and we would just go through all the old Outlook files looking for email addresses and building an Excel file of our list. And those are the people that we were inviting to take a look at our product and because we couldn't even afford to buy a list back then. No, I think that's super important. And thank you for not brushing over that. Cause I'm the same way when I like built my book of business doing other things. It's like, if you don't have a list or anything to sell to, it takes a long time to go through that old computer and those outlook files, but it's way better than going in having nothing at all. And it's worth the time because especially I imagine he had previous relationships with it, but you know, it takes hours upon hours to try to figure out who might be a good customer to even try this, I guess, beta stuff. And if you're going to build a company, especially online company, you got to think of where your customers are at. And I guess you realize, okay, where are these potential customers at? Dad probably has a lot of Outlook files or email addresses where those guys are all in the same industry. So they'll be good potential, I guess, customers for you, right? Mm -hmm. So it took you a couple of years, you said, actually get this going. So that's part of the reason too, I would have thought that you would have the iPad or technology play, if you will, earlier on. How were you getting this information back from the people who were testing it? Would they have to take the contractor's check marks or whoever the customer was, bring it back to their home base? And then would someone there put in an Excel file or something and send it to you all? 
Yeah, great question. Every menu page that we had, all the different options a customer could choose, we had task ID numbers for each. And so when a task was chosen and a customer you know, said, hey, I'll take the gold or the platinum, then the technician would write up the invoice and then back in their office, they would track which levels the customers bought. So in the early days, we had our few customers and our beta customers. Every Friday, we would jump online and do a webinar and have them report back their findings from the week and their numbers from the week. So that's how you're able to track it. And then did y'all just keep track of it? It seems like pretty granular detail, but it is. I'm actually kind of curious, again, since you didn't have anything built up or an online portal, like how are you able to track it when you're doing these calls? Are you writing it down? Are you putting an Excel file to make sure what's working and what's not working? We absolutely did. We wrote it down. They'd email us. They'd send copies of their stuff and we would track it on our side. They'd track it on their side. So it was very manual for a long time. Yeah. And so would you just have to stay on them? Because I couldn't see it being annoying if they're not sending you back the information too. That's where I thought the technology play now would make it much easier. Imagine if you get that information. They did. And then by 2012, we actually started doing ride-alongs as well. So, you know, to start up, you build a product and there's still a lot of unknowns. So as we would sell this product, then we learned, oh, people need some training. So we started doing webinar training. And then in 2012, a company said, well, I'll buy it, but only if you come up here and train my guys. But we'd never thought of that before. And so then Rodney and my brother, Matt, flew up uh, to one of our first ride-along companies, was in Minnesota. They flew up to Minnesota and spent a week there riding along with the technicians in the field, with the menu pages and training the company. And from there, we started selling more and more ride-along. So today, fast forward to 2019, we have trainers in all different cities and states every other week all over the U.S., And so my point is, in the beginning, we were manually tracking numbers, but we were also always very connected to the field and what was going on. And so with our companies, we didn't have to have the numbers of every single ticket that they were doing every day. We were concerned with, is your average service ticket going up? Are you becoming more profitable? Are you increasing your cash flow? And if the answer is yes, then awesome. If it goes down, then it's time to take a look and do some training again. What would y'all be actually training them on? Because I thought the whole point of this was that they didn't have to even say anything almost to the customer. In the original beta tests, we had to prove that the system itself would work. We did that in an amazing way. The reason that we tracked is we had to know if it worked. Remember, the first time we tested, the average ticket went up $200. Out of that $200, about 180 was absolute NET net profit. We were putting four to $6,000 a week per service truck back into these companies in additional net profit. Our system was infusing so much money into these companies, they became enormously profitable one of the first times in their company's history. So we needed documentation of that simply to keep selling to larger audiences. The more that we could prove that our system worked, the more we could sell. Our message was too good to be true. We can double your service ticket and increase your net profit by about 30% or about three times. And people were like, well, they couldn't believe that because they'd heard a lot of other stories. They bought a lot of seminars like you. We also realized that if the technicians, if we would train them, they had to understand a new way of thinking. And that was not to sell or try to upsell or in any way pressure a customer to buy anything. They had to learn to trust the system. So we developed scripts and processes. And then when we went out and started doing ride-alongs, 
then we were able to tweak and correct and build better training. We are the only pricing service in this industry that goes out and does regular ride-alongs, uses the product in front of the customer every day, which keeps us very, very grounded and very knowledgeable about the industry and the customers and the companies that we do business with. Well, Danielle, I mean, as far as, because again, I just want to make sure that we include her because I think we got most of the story you've Rodney and the buildup and everything here. But as far as the ride along, so did you end up going at all? Because again, I'm confused that if the whole system now, I thought it's almost like we don't talk as much comparatively to the what the guys were doing before. No, now there's a script. It's basically eight sentences that they use to throughout the service call. They can still talk to the customer like they normally would. But they follow the process and they get those eight sentences in and then they present the menu page and the customer does. You know, to your point, Austin, before with traditional flat rate, the industry pressured the technicians to sell and to upsell in the home. And so trying to get them to talk too much to the customer and over explain what the customer needed. Hey, you need to buy this. You need to buy that. And so our simple script is the greeting, how to greet the company. I mean, the customer and then how to present the options and just say my top option is my most permanent, my most premium, and it costs this much, but don't worry, I have other options. Here they are. And it's that simple. So our training is just teaching technicians to stop overcomplicating the service call and simplifying it by following the process. Okay. That makes sense. That's what you're saying is you're almost undoing some of the training that I guess they have been used to trying to sell. It's like, Hey guys, just have a regular conversation with the customer and then do these basic things. Let's not do all this. We're going to take the pressure off you having those kind of awkward conversations and just kind of present them with this. So you said it took a couple of years to get profitable. So like personally tell us how it's gone, I guess, after what, 2012, 2013 is when you started becoming profitable. We did. And tell us how you're actually getting paid. Cause that's what I'm curious about as well. How we're getting paid today by customers or Rodney and I? I guess both. I mean, I'm just, so are you getting a percentage of all these sales or like, are you paying or these electrical companies or HVAC companies paying you monthly? Like, how do you all personally start get making money from this business? Great question. You know, you can answer that, but this is a very important thing. It's a great question, Austin, because once we did the beta tests and the company saw, oh my gosh, we can make money with this system. Then they wanted to buy it. As an entrepreneur, you have to determine what you're going to sell it for. Well, if you've got something that makes people several thousand dollars a week, they ought to be thrilled to pay you a lot of money for it. The truth is they're not. So we had to sell it, we felt like, at a similar cost of other programs, which was about $2,000. But because that wasn't enough and we felt that wasn't fair for what they were getting, so we started trying to sell it for $495 and $50 a month. Almost nobody would buy it. When we got up to $1,500, people would start buying it. So we sold the first year at $1,500 to get in to set up their pricing and all and $50 a month. Here was our goal, Austin. Our goal was that one day that monthly fee will be enough to cover our payroll. By the end of the year or early the next year, Danielle and I both started taking a salary of about $50,000 and getting paid every week. But we begin raising the price so that now today our average customer comes on board at around $6,900 and they typically pay $195 a month 
plus tablet fees. Or to make it simple, they pay us $75 per technician using the system per month and then about seven grand to come on board. So now we have 15 employees, three part-time, and our monthly fees more than cover our payroll, and they have for many years now. And Daniel, any input on that? Yeah, I like how Rodney said, you know, in the beginning we had to test. It takes time to find your right sweet spot price point and then making sure that we could continue to deliver great value. The monthly licensing allowed us to do a lot of great things for our customers. Even today, we do member day webinars. We do a lot of just soft skills training, customer service training, all sorts of different classes and things. We have new marketing pieces that are done for you. They're called variable data pieces. You push a button and it renders marketing pieces. Our customers get all this for free in their membership. So we continued over the years to just build more and more value to help them and for retention and to make it worth their while to be paying monthly. Yeah. And so did you start going to other industries too? Was it only HVAC in the beginning and then you just kind of started adding all these other contractors? It was HVAC in the beginning and then plumbing by demand happened really fast and electrical followed. We have an HVAC equipment system as well. So essentially four different product lines. And then right now we're writing a pest control book, which we hope to launch at the end of this year. So the type of people who are your customers now, I imagine you reached out to everyone in your dad's old Outlook email system. Like, how are you today trying to find customers and trying to sell them on using your product and how it's actually helped these other companies? You know, the market has really changed. We do a lot of industry trade shows. We're in national magazines. We provide a lot of content. We write a lot of articles. Rodney writes a lot of articles and they're in trade magazines all over the U.S. And then, of course, we buy ads in magazines. We have continued to build our list, so we prospect to our own list with eBlast. Back in the day, too, one of our best sources for new leads was YouTube. We would shoot YouTube videos, and people would find us over the weekend saying, hey, I was looking for a new pricing system, and I watched all your videos over the weekend. So YouTube, we really have to credit a lot of our early success, to, And then some of the best practice groups that we were members in, their membership base of contractors uh, that allow us to market to. So how's your personal job role within the company changed, I guess, over these last nine or 10 years? Because again, at first, was it kind of going through with your dad trying to find those initial customers? And then... Sure was. Yeah. Just tell us how that transition has gone for you, especially being the daughter of the guy who, where y'all became partners of this company. And in the beginning, and Rodney is even today the visionary, and I've always been more of the operations. He has the ideas, and then I build the ideas. And every once in a while, I'll say, okay, that's too many ideas. Get out, go four-wheeling, on for a couple of weeks so we can implement these ideas before you bring us any new ones. And I love to build. I love being an operations mind. In the early days, what's difficult being an entrepreneur is you have to wear all the hats because you can't afford to hire anybody. And so you do everything. So at the very beginning, working in the garage, I was building all the price books, working with all the customers and had to be working all the time. We started in 2011. I was so fortunate. I got married in 2013. And in 2015, I had my first baby. And to plan to go on maternity leave forced me to hire an operations manager that would start delivering and fulfilling the product so I would get out of that role. And it was one of the best things that happened because I had to let go. I knew I was going to be on maternity leave. And so she came on board and started to deliver the product for me. And that was the very beginning of me really letting go and learning to allow our team to really run with and flourish and develop themselves. 
it's hard to hire people in the beginning because our cash flow was still short. And so we felt like we couldn't afford really, really high expert level people, directors or VPs or department heads, and we didn't have the departments anyway. And so we just hired people that had good attitudes and were willing to help us build our company and wanted to be a part of a team. And they were so, so important in those early days of just doing whatever it is that they needed to do. But all of us, there was days that I did sales. There was days that I did operations. We all kind of flip-flopped. But then again, in 2015, I was able to let go of some of the reins. And today, my job as president is to make sure all the departments are running and have everything that they need, and then to build partnerships and implement new programs and ideas. Did you ever hire anyone with a bad attitude? We try not to. I know, but I'm just curious because again, from your perspective, because now this is like your baby to an extent, you coming in, I guess you're about 30, right? When you started the company? Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm curious from your perspective, because we have a totally different perspective. Your dad's um, around 63, 64. He's got a different perspective on these businesses versus now you're kind of, it seems like the implementer making sure these things happen. I'm just curious what you would have done differently with this or any issues that you've seen with the new flat rate, since this is basically kind of your first business. You make a good point there being my first business. I probably didn't scale it fast enough in the beginning just because I was trying to be in control of everything because you want to make sure everything's perfect. You're too scared for anything to mess up because you can't afford the risk of something messing up. And so you're involved with everything and you don't let go fast enough. That's the main issue that you see with yourself for this business so far? It was for a while and I just had to learn over time. Rodney had experience hiring and firing and personnel and processes. And I didn't. And so I had to develop and learn all those things. And we're always learning and and working on our education and managing a business. But just this past year, I recognized, hey, it's time for a mental shift in myself. We are no longer in the garage days. We're running a very successful company and we need high level thinking. And I read a book, you know, Scaling Up. I'm sure you heard of it. And this past year that says the greatest strength of the owner is often the greatest weakness of the company because they try to hold on to it too tight. And I had a marketing background and I was always involved in the marketing. And I take a look back and I'm like, although we do a lot of good things in marketing, we haven't done enough. And it's because I was trying to be involved in everything. I really have to learn now to let go of even that and allow my marketing team to really flourish. So I guess I'm still learning along the way. And Rodney's been very gracious. Every once in a while, he'll come in and say, Danielle, it's not that hard. Right. And that's what I'm curious about. It's just, again, those things that you might have done differently. I mean, has there ever been any tension since y'all started the new flat rate personally? Have y'all ever gotten into arguments, the key to things of how you would have done things differently? No. And people ask that because we are related, you know, it's so difficult to have family business. I feel because I left a long time ago and was gone for so long. When I came back, our respect level was different. We started a business together as business partners. I wasn't the child that was still living at home or anything like that. Like it was very different. We started on a different playing field and personality wise, Rodney is a visionary and I am an operations implementer and the personality types have been very key for us. We've never had a big fight. We've never had, if we disagree, we just kind of talk back and forth and whoever has the better idea wins and we're both okay with that because we both know that we have the company's best interest at heart and we trust each other implicitly. So we've been very fortunate, but I think the different personality types have been critical. It's really important to have a visionary, somebody that's always going to be looking to the future. And then I don't butt heads with him on that because I need his visionary abilities so that I don't miss something and then I can go implement it. 
Yeah, it seems like the main thing, even just talking to y'all, not obviously not knowing you too well, but through this interview and hearing it, it's like y'all do have different personalities and you have different mindsets, which is really important. I think the issues that we have with some business co-founders is like they're both of the same mindset or coming from the same background. And that's what usually doesn't breed success. But if you have like different backgrounds or different mindsets, you can kind of take the best of both worlds, if you will. Well, we appreciate y'all doing the interview. I don't know if y'all going forward, you're trying to jump into different kind of niches within this contracting industry. What do you see personally for your future with the new flat rate as well, Daniel? Let me say something here real quick before I forget it. Entrepreneurs fail. There's so many entrepreneurs fail because they don't have the different skills. We see it in contracting and everything. Number one, if you're an entrepreneur, a visionary, and you're not operations, you have to hire somebody to run your business. Now, Danielle has ran the business since day one, 100%. She hires, she fires. Of course, she talks to me about stuff, but everybody here, nobody here says they work for me. They work for her. She runs the company. That's reason number one that we're successful. Reason number two, you have to have a hands-on operation developer. That is my son, Matt, who is now about 35 years old. He developed every idea we ever had. He took it out, developed it, wrote it, made it better, wrote the training manuals. He created our training program now, which brings in, I'm sure, over a million dollars a year. He has become one of the, in my opinion, one of the top business consultants in the nation for contracting. His respect level is just shooting up to where people will pay just about anything. But he sat in hotel rooms night after night working with contractors, and every night he'd go and write processes, make our product better, write more menus, more pages. So we are, in my opinion, enormously successful because Danielle runs the company and Matt develops everything. My position here is I'm the only one that was a contractor. When they have ideas and things, I can tell them whether a contractor will agree with that or whether they won't or whether it'll help their business. That's why we function so well together and the level of respect is enormous. But I could walk away from here today. Believe me, I could walk away from here today and it would just keep getting bigger and better. I'm not at all concerned about that. I believe you. Danielle, do you have any words of wisdom for any other entrepreneurs who are listening? The wisdom that I wanted to give was what I had said about building your list. Make sure to build your list in the beginning. And then with your team, you have to hire the right team. And everybody says it and every book says it. Hire slow and fire fast. And it's often very difficult to do because we get emotional about it. One little thing that we do is everybody we interview, we have a process and we interview three times, one phone interview and two on sites so that we don't make an emotional decision. And on their third on-site visit, if they are going to be offered a position, we do ask them if they know the words to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And they kind of look at us weird and then we ask them to sing it for us. And if they sing it without a hitch, then they're great at following orders. And if they do not, we have found that they are not a good person to be on the team and they don't stay long. And so we no longer hire people who won't sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. <laughs> and I know it sounds so crazy, but it took us time to realize that as we were developing our team, to not make emotional decisions when you're hiring and to really know what you need in the positions and not hire too fast. Thank you both for doing the, this extended interview. I thought it might take a little bit longer since we had two people on the call. If people want to say thank you to either one of you, what's the best way for them to reach you and say thank you for doing the interview here? Thanks so much for asking. Our company is The New Flat Rate. Rodney's email is rodney at menupricing.com. My own is danielle at menupricing.com. 
cool. And I guess they can learn more about your company going to newflatrate.com as well. So I think if we have any contractors out there and haven't heard of you, I think it's worth them taking a stroll at your website and obviously being able to hear how you can help them and hopefully increase their sales. Because I think that's the main issue that most entrepreneurs have is being able to grow those sales. And it seems like y'all can help people in that industry. So that's right. Thank you both for doing the call and we really appreciate it. Thank you, Austin, for having us. We appreciate you. Yeah, bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might like Patreon episode number three, where I talked with Rick Martinez about how to get funding and be successful in the cannabis industry. Or try Patreon episode number five, where I talk with U.S. Army veteran Jeff Palmero about how he is able to grow a successful software business after fighting in Iraq. And last but not least, try Patreon episode number six, where I dive further in detail with Chad Patel on how to quickly build a successful mobile app without breaking the bank.